0: Yeah, so on to our message for today. Um, We're going to be reading from Matthew 10, verses 32 to 39. And if you remember from the past few weeks, John, he's continuing, we're we're continuing our discussion on discipleship. And last week, John, he talked about God's will for us to be disciple makers. And today what we're going to learn about is more about what it means to be disciples of Christ and to to follow Christ and learn after our Lord. From Mark, verse, Mark 1, verse 17, mentioned in last week's message, Christ said, for the disciples to follow me. And so I'm going to try to expand on that topic today. So let's read that passage together. If you could turn with me again, Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 through 39. And I'm going to be reading from the NAS. Verse 32, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men I also will confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Verse 34, Do not think that I came to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Verse 37, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross follow after me. He who has found his life will lose it. He who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Okay, so here, Matthew 10 Jesus is commissioning his disciples for gospel ministry and is providing instructions and guidance to the twelve he just called. He tells them their objective to preach the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand in verse seven, and he gives them special authority to display the kingdom through gifts and healing. He gives them practical instructions to preach to the Jews first and tells them that, tells them what they can anticipate being sent as sheep among wolves, Verse 16, that some may receive their message and that many will not. In the middle of chapter 10, he describes that they will be persecuted, that many will be hostile to their message. And in fact, many will hate them because of Christ. 22, but in spite of this persecution, they, sh- they shouldn't have any fear. To not fear man who can kill the body, but to instead fear God who can kill the soul. In verse 28, And that they should know that the Father cares for them as they go about their mission of preaching the gospel. So then we come to our passage here in verses 32 to 39. And then Jesus goes on to describe characteristics of those who are faithful to the gospel mission. And, you know, that's who we want to be, right? We want to be faithful. We want to be faithful as disciples of Christ. We want to be faithful as followers of Christ. And you know, if you've been around for a little bit in our church, that we uphold discipleship. It's one of our pillars here. I don't know if you can see it on the keyboard, but it says progressing in evangelism and discipleship. And we definitely want to progress in this area. We want to mature. And it's not only in evangelism and how we make disciples, but as, the verse, as this verse refers to, you can't see it behind the chair, but we also want to be faithful disciples of Christ. And so... Focus today will be what our lives should look like if we want to follow Christ as his disciples. And I want to take a step back and recall that when we talk about the, type, the, the, the topic of discipleship, we want to remind ourselves what the, the working or basic definition of a disciple is someone who learns to be like his teacher and who shares a close and intimate relationship. This term is used over 262 times in the New Testament. And in those times, Jewish leaders, the way they were trained was through this process where they would observe and imitate their teacher. And they would have to live with their teacher, and only after rigorous training that they would become a teacher themselves. So discipleship then is just more than just being a learner. It's more than just being a student It involves being an intimate follower and having a close relationship with the one who is discipling you. And it's important to remember this because this was the only message that Jesus ever proclaimed in his ministry. Again, in Mark 1, he says, when he's talking about following me, he's describing this manner of discipleship. Follow him in a very personal and intimate way. And in this personal and intimate way, there is a cost. Right? There's a cost. And, you know, I know what you're thinking, right? And I think many of you, many of us are familiar with Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, where it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Is it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. So we know, you've come to know that salvation is a free gift, right? How can it be costly? When you think of the word cost, think of a payment that needs to be made. So there seems to be a tension here. So while we do receive salvation freely in Christ through faith, without ever having to earn it, salvation in Christ is costly because being a disciple of Christ has its own set of demands and requirements entails having a high level of commitment and sacrifice. Luke chapter 14, verse 28, um, I'll read it for you. And uh, there's going to be many references throughout this message today, so I'll, I'm just going to you know, share the verse with you and if you want to write it down for later, but I'll, just, I'll read them for you here. And in this passage, Christ you know, he warns people to consider the cost of being a disciple. Says Which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or What king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down, take counsel whether he's strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, sends a delegation, asks terms of peace. So therefore, no one of you can be my disciple, doesn't give up all his possessions. So this passage in Luke 14, you know, Christ is preaching to the crowds, and, and they received him well, and they were embracing him, they, they were reacting positively to him, and as if they were ready to follow him. What Jesus does here, he cautions them, and he encourages them to take a careful inventory of themselves, and assess themselves before declaring their willingness to follow him. It's was, it was, it was like he's saying, um, if you want to follow me, this is what it takes. This is what it requires. Christ is making it clear that it takes a commitment. You know, you don't want to be like the guy who wanted to build a tower, got halfway in, didn't have what it takes to make it all the way. You don't want to be like the general who went to war, wasn't ready for what he was to encounter. There's a sense in which we must evaluate the total cost, total demands required in following Jesus. True discipleship is costly in that it causes us to offer up everything we have to pursue just one thing. And that's the person of Jesus Christ. I just want to share with you this quote from John Piper. He talks about the gospel, and I think it applies to this as it relates to being a disciple of Christ. He says, "You may not be sure that you want to make your life count or make a difference. Maybe you don't care very much whether you make a lasting difference for the sake of something great. You just want people to like you, or if you could just have a good job, a good wife or husband, and a couple of good kids and a nice car and long weekends and a few good friends, fun retirement, quick and easy death, and no hell. If you could have all that." that would be a good life and you'd be satisfied. Well, I'll tell you what. That is a tragedy in the making. He goes on to say, Piper does, that you don't have to know a lot of things in your life to make a lasting difference in this world. But you do have to know a few great things that matter, perhaps just one, and then be willing to die for them, then be willing to live for them and die for them. The people that make a durable difference in the world are not the people who have mastered many things, but who have been mastered by one great thing. If you want your life to count, if you want the ripple effect of the pebbles you drop to become waves that reach the ends of the earth and roll on into eternity, you don't have to have a high IQ. You don't have to have good looks or riches. You come from a fine family, or fine school. Instead, you have to know a few great, majestic, unchanging, obvious, simple, glorious truths, or one great, all embracing truth, and be set on fire by them. And that's my prayer for us today that we would be mastered by a few great truths, that our hearts and souls would be driven and compelled, motivated by great truths, and that we would be set on fire them. My prayer is that, that we would, as a church, strive to make a meaningful difference in this world and that we would care about doing something great, not for our name, not for our reputation, but God's name for the gospel. And how do we do this? By being faithful to God's call for us by becoming men and women who pursue and follow after our Lord Jesus Christ despite the high cost. So here in Matthew 10, we'll describe three measures of a true disciple of Jesus Christ to help us understand the high cost of following him. I'll repeat that. Three measures of a true disciple of Jesus Christ that help us understand the high cost of following him. And let's start with verses 32 to 33. Verse 32 says, So everyone who confesses to me before men, I also will confess before my Father who is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men I also will deny before my father who is in heaven. This first measure of a true disciple is he has an unashamed confession of Jesus Christ. The letter a, a true disciple testifies that Christ true disciple testifies Christ as his lord. The word for confess here in verse 32 is homologeo which means to agree or to affirm. It's not just a verbal or intellectual assent to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's merely to recognize Jesus to demonstrate affirmation, to demonstrate agreement with Christ, all that he spoke of about himself, about his deity, about his humanity, about his person, and about his work. The Apostle Paul, he gives us a great example of what this looks like in Romans 1, verse 16. This is a familiar verse for all of us when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for anyone, everyone who believes. This is a characteristic of a true disciple, one who's not ashamed to affirm Jesus Christ. Moreover, a confession is a statement of personal identification as Jesus Christ as your Savior. Romans 10 Verse 9 and 10 says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with, the, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Outward confession with the mouth is a reflection of faith in one's heart. The testimony of what is true that resides in a man's heart. So it's not merely enough to recognize Jesus as the Savior, but to identify him as your own Savior, your personal Savior, because we all know James 2.19 talks about the demons, right? And even they know the truth. They understand the truth about Jesus. They acknowledge the truth about who he is. They believe, but their knowledge of Jesus doesn't save them because he is not their Savior. and They don't affirm him as Lord. And it's an important distinction for us to make because how often is it that we come across people who do have an intellectual understanding of the gospel, but they do not commit to Jesus as their Lord and Master? Many of us have come across people who profess they're Christian, but because their parents are, because their wives are, because their grandparents are, being a disciple of Christ isn't a third-party thing. You can't do it through somebody else. You can't do it by... Proxy. You may have an intellectual understanding of Jesus Christ and recognize what he's done. And I know in this church, we're, we're, we're smart people, we're white collar people, we have a ton of intellectual understanding. But if you make that claim, that's the only claim that you make, hollow and meaningless unless there's an intimate relationship with Christ for yourself. Not knowing, not just knowing. God is gracious and loving because someone has merely told you, because your care group leader has told you, because Huey told you, or because even the Bible has told you. But because you have tasted, you have experienced for yourself this grace and this love through a deep relationship with God the Father, and in this relationship you've cultivated a great desire, you've you've cultivated a longing to know Him, and that through the working of the Spirit and through meditation of the Word of God through the Scriptures. You've been able to understand and experience the word for yourself. And you're able to experience the joy, the real sweetness of God's grace and love. Going back to verse 32, it says, whoever confesses me before men, this indicates that a true believer is willing to announce their relationship with Christ publicly. He's willing to openly identify with Christ wherever he is, whether he's in a comfortable situation like this amongst fellow believers or for the hostility of the watching world the heart of a true disciple is the commitment to proclaim him it indicates a sincerity a genuinity a man's heart and it reminds me you know of uh you know those old de Beers commercials right i think there's plenty of them out there and one i'm thinking of i'm not even sure it's around anymore, but I do remember it. It has etched itself in my mind, and you know, you know, De Beers, right? They they try to sell diamond rings, promote diamond rings, and um, you know, there's this one where there's a couple, and they're visiting uh, St. Mark's Square in, in Venice, Italy, right? And so, you know, th- this place is a is a tourist place, you know, um, tourist trap, and uh, you know, it gets a ton of crowds, and it's known. For, for what? Besides the crowd, it's, it's known for having a lot of pigeons, right? For some reason, like, pigeons just flock to the square. And, you know, if you go there, you know, pigeons will flock to you. They have no fear. of man. Um, and in this commercial, you know, there's this crowd. And in the middle of it, you know, there's this man and his wife. And he, and he just, you know, he just loves his wife. And he tells her, you know, it's I love you. And I just want to shout it at the top of my lungs. So that's what I'm going to do. So he goes in the middle of the square, and he shouts, you know, I love this woman. I love this woman. I love this woman, right? And, you know, what do you expect happens? You know, the crowd, you know, all the attention's on him. You know, the pigeons are all over the place. And, you know, his wife is just watching him, and she's kind of embarrassed. But, you know, he's not. He's not embarrassed at all. He's not ashamed to testify of his great love for his wife. I think it exemplifies, you know, it's a simple analogy right here, but I think you get it. You know, it exemplifies for us the the level of affirmation that the Lord wants us to have, that we would not shy away from testifying to our love for him. So that's letter A, true disciple testifies Christ as his Lord. And letter B, true disciple understands Christ's response to his witness. For those who are willing to claim Christ, Christ will claim before the Father. Verse 32, everyone who confesses me before men, I also will confess before my Father who is in heaven. And we rejoice over this, right? We rejoice at the fact that Jesus Christ will speak in our behalf. But then we go to verse 33. There's a stark contrast because it says, whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And this is, you know, this is a very sobering reality, right? This is a harsh, scary reality. Christ will deny those that deny him. It's a warning to anyone who makes an outward profession but turns away when testing comes. And Christ makes it very clear, right, that testing will come. Remember in the earlier part of Matthew 10, he said that people will hate them. There will be persecution. There will be trouble. There will be peril. Anticipated that the disciples might shrink away when difficulties arise. So, when we talk about denying Christ, you know, this can be manifested in a variety of ways. It's not just, you know, the outright blaspheming or cursing him as you would typically think. The other day I was at a market, you know, and we're in Orange County, conservative. Place here, but in the, in the middle of this market, there's this guy has a black shirt, and just very bluntly says, "Jesus is dead," you know. And so I was like, so shocked. I was like, "Wow!" Like that's very just out there, you know. And I was staring at him, and it's just like, "Wow, a guy has moxie," you know. And certainly that's you know denying Christ, and that's obvious. But denying the Savior is more evident is evident also in in other subtle ways includes failing to testify Christ, failing to be a bold witness, being satisfied with not knowing, with anyone not knowing of your faith and just having your faith go unnoticed. It's quite the opposite of letting your light shine in Matthew 5, 14. Denying Christ is also seen through actions and thoughts that more resemble the world than resembling the life of Christ in Titus 1. It says that they profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. And we we see this theme in Matthew of true discipleship versus false discipleship. There's a contrast between those who are sincere in their devotion to Christ and those who are not. It's reflected in their obedience or lack thereof. Matthew 7 verse 21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Those who fail to demonstrate their affirmation of Christ as Lord ultimately be denied entrance into the kingdom of heaven. So, okay, right, right, woo, right? I, I do want to, though, so that's, you know, I do want to take a moment and recognize that in reality, in this life, my life and your life, right, there are lapses of faithfulness. Um, you know, we know how Peter, he denied the Lord, how ashamed he was how brokenhearted he was over his sin. We know how, and some of you may know, but you know, also there's Timothy. He showed some reticence. He showed some fear and trepidation in sharing the gospel, which is why he was admonished Second 2 Timothy. So Peter and Timothy weren't always faithful, but their shame of the gospel was not typical of their lives. They're an example of God's grace and faithfulness to us when we repent, when we confess our sin we know that Christ forgives us. John 1.9, we all know because we cling to this truth, right? If we confess our sins, he's faithful. He's righteous to forgive us our sins. Praise God. Because for Timothy and Peter, they were just lapses of faithfulness. Lapses. It wasn't reflective of their normal heart, their normal attitude towards the Lord. Their lives were characterized by an affirmation of Jesus as their Lord. So the question is, for us, are our, life, are our lives characterized by an unashamed confession of Jesus? Does our testimony reflect a sincere affirmation of the gospel? Number one, the first measure of a true disciple is having an unashamed confession of Christ. Number two, this next measure is that a true disciple has an unrivaled love for Jesus Christ. It's an unrivaled love for Jesus Christ. And so, there every measure, The ball rises. So let's look at verses 34-37. Do not think that I came to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Letter A, true disciple, recognizes that Christ came to bring conflict. You know, and so this is sobering. Right? Verse thirty-four: I Do not think I, I came to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. So you know what? What Christ is doing here, he's cautioning the disciples because they likely misunderstood the nature of his coming. You know, the Jews they expected the Messiah to bring peace. I mean. Jesus is known as the Prince of Peace in, in, in Isaiah 9.6, and his reign is one of justice and peace Isaiah Isaiah 2.4. And for the, for the disciples themselves, they experienced joy and peace from their early times with Christ and probably ex- expected more of the same. At the beginning of the chapter, Christ is, is granting them powers and abilities to heal and teach, so they're probably pretty excited about the prospect of preaching the good news and, and telling people that the kingdom, the long-awaited kingdom, is at hand. It's, they, they might have assumed that the world would just fall at their feet and that them and their message would be embraced. Now, there's no mistaking, right, that, that Christ with Christ there's peace. Um because Jesus Christ is the prince of peace and in Ephesians 6 you know it just it goes to great length to talk about how Christ is our peace that through him the enmity between God and man has ended that through the cross we have reconciliation right so the gospel is a gospel of peace but what Christ is talking about here in this passage is that the gospel brings division it brings conflict how Jesus came to bring a sword the sword reflects the result of following him, that following him would separate the most intimate of relationships. And I would imagine that this is a struggle for anyone who desires to be a disciple of Christ. You know, here, you know, Jesus, he didn't talk about all the pleasure and comfort in following him. He didn't talk about all the friends that the disciples would make. He talked about the foes. He talked about the enemies. And why does Christ use this severe language? We mentioned this earlier, and I think John 15:20 expands on this, but Christ said to his disciples, "A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. You should expect to be treated like Christ. And if they hated him, they would hate them also." And why would the world hate Christ? I think we know this, right, because the gospel exposes the sin in man. It calls out us for who we are, that we're sinners before a holy God. Inherently, the gospel is offensive, and because it's so offensive, it is to be rejected by men. Martin Luther said that if our gospel were received in peace, it would be the wrong gospel. It would not be the true gospel. So offending someone with the gospel is to be expected, and who among us have not been in this position? And I know that many of you have your own stories and, and anecdotes and, you know, about being in this position of being, offending somebody with the gospel. I remember my own sister-in-law telling me about how um, you know, she would come to her work to read the Bible, and um, there was one day where she was so astonished, um, and she couldn't believe the response that she got. She just left her Bible on her desk. And the people that came to her and they asked her, you know, why did you bring the Bible to your desk? And we're telling her that, you know, it doesn't belong here. Take that out. They were treating her and treating it as if like it was a dog or it was something foul. And just having the Bible on her desk was offensive. And she was reading it and and it, it, she was just surprised at how much fuss it produced. And, and she couldn't believe it. And we were talking about this, and she was telling me, you know, like, I don't know why they're so offended. You know, the Bible talks about love, and I don't understand why people are threatened by it. And it just goes to show how, you know, sinners, they just hate the truth, right? They hate to be reminded of their sin. They hate to be reminded that they cannot save themselves, but that they need Jesus Christ to save them. That's what the gospel forces sinners to do. Recognize their sin and call on Christ. Trust in him alone to deliver them from their sin and provide his righteousness. So the world hates the gospel. It will cause anyone who chooses to follow Christ to have conflict in their relationships. And I know many of you have unbelieving relatives and know it's sad you know, that there's been strife solely because of your affirmation of the gospel. And it's, it's understood that this strife is, is difficult, and it's sometimes, and many times, irreconcilable. But what Christ is saying here is that if we were to follow him, we must be willing to pay that price. So letter B, a true disciple of Christ chooses him over his family. So, Remember the beginning where I said, Moms, we love you. Mom, I love you, we love you, right? But here, verse thirty seven, Christ uses a strong language to make this point. He who, who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who, who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Those who follow Christ cannot be divided in their commitment. Luke chapter 9, verses 57 and 62, talks about how there are these two would be disciples, and how they didn't follow Christ because they were unwilling to sacrifice their family relationships. And the one wanted to wait for his inheritance before following the Lord, and the other wanted to delay until he had settled everything with his family. And what does Jesus say? He says, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, Fit for the kingdom of God. You know, just it goes to show in verse 37 how Jesus wanted to drive away uncommitted by the strength of the call. He didn't want false believers, he didn't want people who would not be totally devoted to the cause of the gospel. And he didn't want anyone to be deceived into thinking that following him would be devoid of struggles and conflicts. Verse 37 describes just the the magnitude, the depth of love that we ought to have for Christ. If we're to follow him, we must love him above all. He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And in Luke 14, verse 26, it says this with much stronger language. Verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters... Yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So, hate is a strong word, right? But you know, Christ, he doesn't mean to literally hate our parents, as as we think about hating. You know, and that it's you know an intense dislike for them. Um, you know, we shouldn't dislike our parents. You know, we should we should like our parents. We should love our parents. We know that we should honor them from Exodus twenty. When God uses the word hate, it signifies a choice. It's a Hebrewism which signifies a choice made according to one's will. And we see this in Genesis. I think you're familiar with this when God says, "Jacob I loved, Esau I hated." God chose Jacob over Esau, and we saw how he did that by giving him the blessing normally reserved for the oldest son. You know, God didn't dislike Esau in the way that we think of hate. God had compassion on him. He had compassion on his children. God hated Esau since that he loved Jacob more. And so this is Christ's point. He wants us to love him more, to love him more than anything. Love and allegiance to him should exceed that even of our own parents and that seen by our behaviors, by our choices and our decisions to honor and obey Christ first of everyone including those that we love and respect the most. And I know it's hard to imagine because today of all days, right, I'm well aware that today is Mother's Day. And, you know, we do want to remember why we love our parents. You know, we want to remember them every day and celebrate them every day, our moms, our dads, and remember everything that they've done for us and the gracious provision from God. They are to us and it's really hard, right? To think of loving anyone else more because you have an intense love for them. But Christ wants us to love him more. He wants fully committed, devoted people who place him at the center and focus of their lives. That's what genuine discipleship is in Christ, that it's a strong devotion to him, that we're so fixated on him. That we can abandon everything else, even if it calls us to abandon our own family. Just like in Ephesians 4.22, when Paul says that we must put off the old man, we lay aside anything in, ourselves, in and of ourselves that encumbers our devotion to Christ. And in Ephesians 4, it's talking about you know, the, the things of this world. It talks about the sinful things, but in the same vein... We must deny our human relationships, even our precious ones, even our families, if they were to hold us back from Christ. This type of loyalty requires us to have a very unique love for him, to love him above all. So we're called to have an unrivaled love for Christ, and the question for you is the same question for me. Do I have this unrivaled love for Christ. Is there anything in my life that I love more that takes a greater place than Jesus? We're looking at three measures of a true disciple and help us understand the high cost of following him. The first is to have an unashamed confession. The second is to have an unrivaled love. And third, the last, is that we have an uncompromising obedience to Jesus Christ in verses 38 to 39. Verse 38 and whoever does not take his cross follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Letter A, a true disciple offers his own life. So no one in these times would have mistaken Christ's point in taking up the cross. The cross symbolized death. Um, you know, I know that a few of you uh, know this: that uh, in our family, uh, we recently took a vacation in Arizona a few weeks ago, and um, in our trip, we visited a, a Western-themed town, and uh, they had all of these old antiques, you know, from 100 years ago. You would, you know, imagine that you would typically think of think of a Western town. You know, there was, um, you know, horses and, and buggies and carriages and an old saloon and an ironsmith. smith, and in the middle of all this was an electric chair. And I didn't even mention it to Jennifer, but when I saw it, there was this, um, I don't know how, how did you call it, but it was just like a flash of nausea that kind of came over me. Because when I saw it, I just thought for a moment, you know, for all the people that had died at the hands of, of one of these things. I thought about all the people who suffered a terrifying death through electrocution. And I got even more grossed out, you know, because I saw that, you know, people were, were taking pictures with it, that people were sitting on the chair and, and taking selfies and, you know, taking pictures with our families next to this electric chair. And it was just so strange, right? Because people were messing around with this thing. People were having fun with it. And it's it's an instrument of death. And I think that that's what we forget that's what the cross was. That you know, we obviously associate it with, with Christ um and his sacrifice for us. So we have a very different impression of it than just being an instrument of death. That's what it was, and that's what the disciples must have seen it as. Because only a few years prior to this passage in Matthew. Was, um, man, there was a man, there's a zealot named Judas, not that Judas, but a different one, and he, he gathered together a band of rebels to fight Romans. And these rebels were eventually put down by the Romans, but in order to teach these rebels a lesson, the Roman general ordered 2,000 of the Jews to be executed and their crosses lined the roads of Galilee from one end to the other. 2,000 crosses. So when the disciples saw this, they must have known, they knew exactly what Christ was talking about when he says here to take up the cross in verse 38. They knew that to follow Christ, it would require them to obey him and fully commit themselves to him to the extent of giving up their own lives. To embrace God's will no matter the cost. And we have the same thought in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, where Christ says, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, sometimes there's this idea of taking up the cross, and it's often confused with with tragedies and with sufferings in life, with trials of life. And I want to be clear that that's not what we're talking about here. It's not the stuff, it's not the things that, that test your faith. It's not terminal illness or um, a difficult child or an abusive spouse which in and of themselves you know, are, are trials and are, are difficult things um, to be challenged with. That is not taking up your cross. What the cross is, it's the willing sacrifice of everything one has. Including possibly their own lives for the sake of following Christ. Being Totally devoted to him and following him all the way even if it were to mean death verse 39 verse 39 says whoever finds his life will lose it and so this is what happens when you're unwilling to take up your cross when you'd rather take possession of your life and hold on to it and what this life brings you treasure it cling to it you hold on to it and everything in this world and you consider that to be more valuable than knowing Christ. You let the comforts of this world and all sense of security, financial, personal, social, and otherwise, rule over you, have dominion over you. And in this effort to hold on to your life, you ultimately show that you love these things, cherish these things more than Christ. In effect, you reveal that you do not have a real relationship with him. And the result is that you lose your soul. It's the opposite of the phrase we know, finders, keepers, losers, weepers. In this case, it's finders, keepers. Ah! In this case, John, help me with this. In this case, it's finders, weepers, losers, keepers. Finders, keepers, losers, keepers. that was a gift from John from North Carolina, so I don't want to take credit for that. But um, yeah. so you hold on to this life, the things of this world, and you're not willing to abandon them, lose your soul and you reveal that you are not a true disciple of Christ, and in effect you have denied him. And we remember that when we deny him, that Christ will deny us. Letter B. A true disciple finds life in Christ, and as we see in the second half of verse thirty-nine, life is found when it is and given over to Christ alone, for His sake. A true disciple is able to boast only in the cross, like the Apostle Paul, where he says in Galatians six fourteen, "Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus." Or in 1 Corinthians two, he says he desired nothing to know Christ and him crucified. You can only boast in the cross and exalt in it when you die to yourself and you give up what this world offers, what this life offers. When you lose your life for his sake, verse 39 is when you find it. Demonstrate your devotion to him. You reveal that you are destined to be with him in heaven and have eternal life. And it's only because God has transformed you and have His spirit within you that you'd be willing to give up your life. Identify with Paul in Philippians 1 where he says that to live is Christ and to die is gain. You know, so these are, very, these are very sobering words, right? And this is, this is the call that Christ makes to all of us for all of us that desire to follow him. That we would obey him and follow him to the point of death and I know, and, and you guys know as well as I do, that this concept is is absolutely foreign to us here in America, and there's few of us that will ever face the threat of losing our lives because of our faith. That is what Christ is telling us that we should be prepared to do. You know, we hear stories. You hear stories. You see the news, right? Um, Christians all over the world who have shown their willingness to take up the cross. And we hear of our Iraqi brothers and sisters being persecuted by ISIS. Those in North Korea where there's over 50,000 Christians in labor camps face the real possibility of death. And there's just so many more in, in Africa, all over the world, in the Middle East and Southeast Asia. And again, we don't face that here in the U.S., but we do need to be confronted with the truth that persecution leading to death can be a reality and in this lifetime, we could be faced the same threats over our lives because our allegiance to Christ. And so the question for us is, are we willing to take up the cross? Have we considered the reality that in this life, we may have to decide between life and death? And would we be willing to give up our lives to Christ? We have many brothers and sisters who have counted this cost and have proven themselves faithful. And I I pray to God that, that should that day come, that we would have that same obedience and that we would not compromise and we would follow Christ. So as we close, I just have you know, a few concluding thoughts. You know This, this message is, is a tough one. God promised all who follow after him that in this life, that it will be a tough life. It will be hard, it will be full of peril, it will be full of hardships and trouble. And we just saw here that with being a disciple of Christ, there is a great cost, that it is demanding. And you might think it's nearly impossible to follow Christ according to these measures. And sadly, most will choose not to become a true disciple. Matthew 7, enter Matthew 7 verse 13, enter through the narrow gate for, gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few, there are few who find it. Few will walk through the narrow gate that leads to life in Christ. There are few who will ultimately embrace these measures true disciple. And so I know what you might be asking yourself, you know. I know that these measures of following Christ are true, but you know what? I just don't feel it. I just don't feel it. I'm not into it. You know, I just, I just lack the desire. I just, I just don't have this desire to pursue Christ for those measures. And you know what? That's an honest question, man. That's an honest question. That's a real question, and I'm sure that it reflects those of us who, who, who consider the cost and see the real trouble that comes with following him. And what that does, is it reflects our discomfort, right? The just uncomfortability. I know that's not a real word, right? But just how uncomfortable it is with following Christ and counting this cost. So Cornerstone, it's, it's, it's with this question that we just need to be reminded how we need to have truth govern our lives as believers. We want to have truth rule over us. We know by hearing, it's by understanding and living by the truth that we have from God's word that we experience grace. And what we learn from today, from Matthew 10, is that Jesus calls for us. These demands are hard us to follow him, and with these truths, that these truths should rule over us. We don't want to let our feelings rule over us. Our feelings come from our hearts, and while the world and pop songs and Taylor Swift and, you know, everybody and everybody tell us to listen to our hearts, you know, from Jeremiah seventeen nine tells us that our hearts are deceitful can't trust our hearts. Feelings come from our hearts and they're subjective and they're often used. Truth be known, they're often used by the devil himself and his wiliness to confuse us and ensnare us from abiding in the truth of God's word that we do have. On top of which, our feelings are often coupled with forgetfulness forgetfulness of God's grace, forgetfulness of his goodness, of his past faithfulness, and we forget how much God has blessed us and poured out into our lives, just his love and his mercy, and we forget to rejoice and we forget to give him thanks for what he's done for us. And so that's why it's so important to preach the gospel to ourselves, to remember the gospel, and I know that we hear this Often and over and off and over again, but it's true cornerstone that we do
1: need to preach the gospel to ourselves, because I know for myself, I forget, I forget I forget how God has been gracious to me. I'm a sinner, I forget how much I forget how much I just need to put my hope, and my trust in him alone. I'm always in circumstances where it's difficult to obey. Right? Am I the only one? It's hard. And I just lack the desire. Am I the only one? Sometimes the desire to pursue Christ is not there. But why, why this is happening is because I know that God is faithful. I know that God has helped me see how wrong my feelings are, my heart is, and how true um, it is that
0: these are reflections of my sin, and I hate my sin. I hate the flesh that resides in me,
1: and God has been merciful to me. Self
0: control. But God has been faithful to forgive me in my sin.
1: Praise God. Amen. And red, right. Because it's the Lord who has conv- it's the Lord. It's the Lord who has created these convictions in my heart. It's not me. He has created these convictions in my heart to obey him, to follow him. And it's because he has been faithful to
0: me and because the Bible affirms this as well. I know he'll be faithful to you. Know that when you seek to honor him through even the most difficult situations, he'll be faithful to you because he's been faithful to me and the word of Christ says so. confessing him before men, of loving him more than any other, of denying ourselves, and being willing to take up the cross. These are the characteristics of a true disciple that ought to be reflected in our lives as we strive to follow him. And J.C. Ryle, he summarizes this great quote of how we ought to consider our lives in view of following Jesus Christ we shall find it most useful to remember this lesson ourselves and to impress upon it to others. Few things do so much harm in religion as exaggerated expectations. Let me say that again. Few things do so much harm in religion as exaggerated expectations. People look for a degree of worldly comfort in Christ's service. which They have no right to expect and not finding what they look for, are tempted to give up religion in disgust. Happy is he who really understands that through Christianity, holds out a crown in the end. It brings also a cross in the way. May God help us not to pursue anything that this life or this world offers, but that we would pursue Jesus Christ and the crown he offers when this earthly life ends. Let's pray.